Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Really special guest today, Taylor Monahan, the founder of MyCrypto.com. It's very interesting because with the way crypto works, everything happens very quickly. And so, and that's okay. And so you'll have one company that exists and that'll launch and it'll fill a need, but eventually, and they're the first ones through the door, but eventually down the road, even like in like six months, a better version of it will come out and... Um, people will use it. Um, we've seen a few companies be different from that, not follow that same curve. For example, Coinbase. Coinbase has just been around and it still has that market share it does. And interestingly enough, um, Taylor had founded my Ether wallet and now it's now it forked off into my crypto. I don't know how, how she explains it, although I personally use my crypto now, even though I used my Ether wallet before and I know most people do the same. Um, but it's still, it's still, it's still there. It's still, it's still using it. There's still people using it and love it. It's got loyal followers. And, and is it just because it hasn't broken yet, Taylor? Is that why? Why do you think? Yeah. I mean, people are scared of change, right? Um, <laughs> true, but still like, um, there have been amazing apps that, that have come out on your phone about on your, on your, um, on your computer web app yeah. with great security that offers very similar things maybe a little bit easier to use in some in some aspects like being able to add tokens or buy and sell and trade and do all these different things um but like and 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 I'm asking for myself because I I am one you know it's I go my browser I type the MY and my crypto is the first thing that comes up and it's like um it's it's a reflex I don't even think about using something else with my trader or my ledger right and I think that you know we we talk about like like internally we do research and stuff and, and we talk about like competitive advantages and we talk about the features and what we should build next and we go so deep into these things. But if I zoom out and I say, what made us you know, successful? What makes people use us? Um, it's, it's like the trust and it's the familiarity and it's, it's everything that's not the features, um, Interesting. interestingly enough. So, you know, I think when people initially maybe start using us, um, you know, they're looking to solve a problem or they they tried to do something with Ledger Live and it didn't work and someone said, use my crypto and it worked. But after a while, it's just, um, yeah, it's that habit. It's the fact that you know what's going to happen. You trust it. Um, and I think that's a really big thing in the crypto space. Stability in crypto is something that gets a lot of points. So when you sit there and you rate different companies for all these different things, um, stability and always on and always working and, you know, are not really synonyms that you associate with crypto. They're not really terms that you associate with it um, because, you know, crypto is so new. It's a... Uh, it's, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're all still science experiments. Things break, uh, things happen 
And so when you say, oh, this is the wallet that just works, it's stable, it's it's relatively easy to use once you know how to use it. I think people are excited mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, exactly. And I <laughs> I love how you say relatively easy to use once you know how to use it because so many people come at me and they're like, oh, it's so easy and it's perfect. And I'm like, uh, we're, no, yeah. we're not there yet. I know that. No, <laughs> it, it, I think, I think, you know what, you can go to like united.com and, and book flights. You can go to united.com and click expert mode. It's like expert yeah, mode. Yeah, it is. But it's really not complicated to use expert mode once you know how to use it. It's just, I feel like there could be a lot of things that could be hidden or or not hidden but features that people may not want not all the masses may want to use and then so the simple features like looking at your balance sending receiving just could be the ones that are shown and people can turn all the other stuff on but i like all the other stuff i like all the options i like to see what i can do with it i like to play around and get involved in ens or you know um sign look at contracts and all these different things i i like that yeah. But I'm different. I think that you are sort of one of our, uh, at this point, like the, the quote unquote perfect user for our product because we do have so many of these like weird advanced features or things that we've built in direct response to some problem that people were having. Um, the ENS is one, the contracts page is one. Just even like being able to edit your nonce on a transaction. Um, I think we added that in direct response to the CryptoKitties phenomena where yes. people were trying to send their CryptoKitties around and they, you know, the network was overflowing and they couldn't like replace a transaction or they couldn't uh, get their CryptoKitty unstuck. It would just be in this pending state forever. And so like we wrote this whole guide on you know, how you can change the nonce manually to replace the transaction to get it to go through so that you can send other kitties around or whatever the hell it was. Um, and yeah, those features are things that, you know, your your new user or your average person is never going to need. But when you do need them, they are there. Uh, and I don't think there's any other products that do that. Does anyone complain to you that they feel it's it's overwhelming when you go to the site? And there's just so much coming at you in one shot? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't necessarily come at us like that. But what they do is, um, you know, they'll ask questions. Like, they'll email support. And instead of asking a very specific question, they'll just be like, hi, <laughs> I I think I know what I'm, I need to do. Can you, like, just check my thinking or something like that? And they'll literally just kind of check in with us and say, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to press send and everything's going to be fine, right? Well, what about doing, like, a toggle switch? Like, that idea of, of having it where someone new comes on mm-hmm. and everything is just there on one page that's really simple. And then if you want to add, you could toggle on and off expert mode. Yeah. And if you're not doing expert mode, you could potentially... Um, just have all the default stuff. Well, you kind of do that already with like calculating fees. So I always change. I always do it with Ethereum because I'm scared. I've gotten so many transactions stuck, especially these like some of these tokens that I don't even know what they do. But I have to change like the gas to like 150 thousand and the GUI to like 99. Yeah. And then I don't touch the nonce. But now I know what what it's for. I could do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We sort of do that, and we have a big redesign coming up that is going to. Um, really simplify the process a bit more. Um, and then, you know, obviously we'll still have the advanced functionality in that like advanced drop down or whatever you want to call it. Um, 
But could you do me a huge favor? Yeah. Could could you maintain like legacy.mycrypto.com? Yeah. Just the old version of it? Of course. Thank of course. you. So Always. so many companies I asked them and they never want to do it. The only person that actually did it was Mt. Gox, interestingly enough. Interesting. When Mt. Gox did a redesign, his so everyone has this image in their head of Mt. Gox of what it looked like. It was like the blue and yellow logo with the colors and um, on their website. That wasn't the original Mt. Gox was actually it was a white page with box yellow like boxes and then black words. The logo was like not even a logo. It just said like it literally said in um, like Times New Roman Mount Gox. And it was literally probably written in, in a text edit. There was it was all on the back end, but there was no front end U- UI. It was just you got to go look at pictures yeah. of it. And then. But it worked. It was stable. Yeah. And now we're talking about Mt. Gox being stable. <laughs> but it, it worked and there was never loading time. It didn't have to load anything. Right. Cache, it was the graphics. just freaking HTML. It was just basic HTML. You clicked a button. It loaded in two seconds and it worked. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And then when he when he launched the new Mt. Mount Gox with all this fanfare, everyone was all excited about all these new features. But Mark, like, it was literally all the same features. There was nothing new. And... And it just had all new graphics. But the problem is when you're redesigning a site and you know this, when you're redesigning a site, like a a whole brand and a site, and you're trying to fit all the old features in the new site, it doesn't work. It's like wonky. Yeah. And like how everything is displayed. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things, so let me tell you a little bit about the redesign. So we, we, we could have done a redesign when we kind of forked from my Ether wallet and we chose Is that not a proper to. way to describe it? Yeah, fork? that's how I describe it. It's perfect. <laughs> it's cuz crypto people understand. Oh, you just all right, I get it. Yeah, like, yeah, all right, you fork. <laughs> um, you know, but we chose not to because again, like that stability and and everything. And so we had a new code base, but the new code base literally was like, you know, we made some minor UI improvements, but that was it. Um, but we've been really working hard on it's more than a redesign. It's like rethinking sort of our product a bit. And and what it does is that right now when you go to our site, you're basically like thrown into like, you know, here, go unlock your wallet and then take whatever action you want to take, whether that's uh, sending a transaction or interacting with a contract or, you know, even people just like checking their balance. Um, and instead what we're going to do is we're going to have a dashboard that basically has all of your accounts that you've interacted with um, and it'll show you like your balance across all of those accounts and your tokens across all of those accounts and then from there you can like you know buy ETH with your credit card or you can send a transaction or you can interact with contracts or whatever and so the send page actually gets quite interesting because you know we want to make sure the user knows where they're sending from Right. Like we want to if they have like four accounts or 10 accounts or 50 accounts, we want to make sure they know exactly where they're sending from. Um, And then it gets even more interesting because with Ethereum, you have all of these tokens. You have like thousands of tokens. And how do you show that's it? How do you show thousands of token balances across multiple accounts efficiently? I like that you have that new scan feature that especially I like that. And that was a really, you know, when you use the Trezor to log on 
and you see your 15 addresses or however many you have, yeah. you can then click the token balances because you forget. It's confusing. Oh, it's so confusing. And so what this is like, and, and I literally, when our designer presented this to us, I was like, Haha, you're crazy. Like, this is so on its head. This doesn't make sense. What you do now is you actually select the asset that you want to send first. And it feels so weird until you've done it once and then you just it just makes sense. So you want to send your weird random token that you bought in some ICO or that was airdropped or whatever. And then it'll show you all of your addresses and that okay. the balance. Oh, it scans that. all the addresses and everything. Right. So if you have 10 addresses, it'll like the drop down will like update so that it'll Can it show, aggregate? Yeah, yeah. It'll show like with your, Bitcoin if you have it'll show your like like this is just on the send page. Say I want to send ETH. I select ETH and then it'll show and it'll sort my addresses by like most to least ETH. And then I select which address I want to send from. And then I select like I just say how much I want to send. And that's pretty much it. And who I want to send to, <laughs> you know, and then everything else is hidden under the advanced features. Um, oh, that's awesome. But it gets it feels really weird because the first question you're pretty much asked is like, what do you want to send? And no interface really does this. But um, it makes sense. Like, it, it really, it works. It just works. It doesn't make sense when you think about it, but when you use it once, it, like, it really works. So, um, you know, and usually on this show, we focus more on the person, who you are, and why you were able to um, do what you did. And, and I want to get to that in a second. Usually we save the, the stuff about, what you're working on until later, even though it's all intertwined. But mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like my crypto is like a person in and of itself, you know, and that's an interesting yeah. topic to cover. Kind of like they say, yeah, corporate, you start a corporation, a corporation is a, is an, is its own person, you know, for, for tax purposes or whatever it is. And that's kind of how I feel about this. But I wanted to ask you, I always feel like with tokens, um, if someone were to look at the concept of, of tokenizing something and said, and said, okay, this is what it'll look like in 10 years. Um, and then there's like, they show various steps of how it got there. And I feel like where we're at with tokens now is like, not even on the first step. Like if, if we go back, if, if someone from 10 years from now goes back in time and looks at us and how's we're, how we're acting and reacting and doing things with tokens or just, you know, having smart contracts on the blockchain, um, they'll laugh at us and say, you guys are wasting your time with, with, with what, you know, ICOs and airdrops and just these stupid things. Um, yeah, they're fun and we're all capitalists and we make money, but there's a lot of people that get screwed over too and there's a lot of scams. But this is what it it, it, it is going to be. This is... This is a real killer application. Yeah. Do you feel like you're you're building now for that? No, and I'm just starting to see. I mean, I want to obviously, but right now we're just. Uh, I mean, we just show a freaking token list. That's not, you know, that's not where we're gonna be. Um, and I think we're just starting to see the tokens sort of evolve, and people realize that, oh, these tokens aren't just like you know, tied to like a white paper or a company or an ICO, or it's not something that you just like hold and then you can speculate on. It's something way more. And so we've seen two really interesting, in like the last two months, we've seen two interesting use cases. Um, the first is ENS. 
So now the ENS names themselves are actually sort of these non-fungible tokens, these NFTs. And so you can like, instead of having a custom interaction with the ENS contract every time you want to like send or sell a domain name, it's just like this standard. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's like a token. So the name itself. And this is, is the like Ethereum naming system. Yes. Is that what it stands for? Okay. Exactly. So like, let's say and I buy monahan.eth and then I want to sell it to my cousin or something. <laughs> you know, I don't have to do some whole custom setup. I can literally just like send them this, this token that represents the ownership of the name. I feel like though, I feel like we missed why... ENS was so important and it was, oh, yeah. it was almost glossed over. So to give you a little bit of background, even the people around Satoshi and to some extent Satoshi himself, we all complained about Bitcoin addresses. We did. But you go back to the early forum post, we complained and it's still it's still it's still complicated today. Even account numbers are shorter, but Bitcoin addresses are long. They're case sensitive and, and it's annoying, a little bit of annoying to have to send someone your Bitcoin address. And so the idea was early, very, very, very going back even 2012, 2011 was we need some sort of naming system. But the only system that we could think of would always rely on centralized parties, on on companies on top of it. Do, and <clears throat> excuse me, the only way we can do that was to rely on those companies on top of it. And it didn't work because it goes against everything with crypto. You have man in the middle attacks. If you rely on a company you then you're basically giving up your Bitcoin address and the whole reason for privacy goes away. You don't want to tell someone, okay, you can send it to Charlie Shrem, but the company that propagates Charlie Shrem to a Bitcoin address now knows that Charlie Shrem owns this Bitcoin address. Mm-hmm. And so the community was very against that. But with ENS, the ability to have naming on top of like built into the blockchain, I feel like was such a big deal to be able to get rid of Ethereum addresses altogether and just do naming, why hasn't that taken off? Why why are we still all using addresses? Um, so the first one is integrations. And like we're a bit at fault as well. But like it should be um, everyone should just like have a, a name assigned to them, basically. And then if they want to pay for their super special charlieshram.eth, they can do so. Um, the second is like it has to be everywhere. So every exchange, every wallet, every dApp, like just has to have you know, ENS names sort of like by default rather than these addresses. Um, And then I think like there's a little bit of hesitance just because, you know, everyone's been in crypto or everyone who cares about They're so used to it. Yeah, Yeah. you're used to the addresses. And it's also it like feels like, like I'm sure in the early days of the internet, there were like these dudes that would only navigate via IP address because they could like trust it or something. And I feel like we're still there with with Bitcoin addresses or either addresses or whatever. So all the reasons that you just gave me are the same reasons that when I asked you, why are people using my crypto and mass when there's there are other newer apps that make things a little more simpler. Mm -hmm. And it's the same reason that you just gave me over why. Although I wouldn't agree that that that's the best comparison because um doing using ENS names are like 10 times better than using addresses but I still believe that my crypto is in the top you know of all the apps to use so maybe it's not the best example but you see my point yeah 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 absolutely um and I think that we'll we'll get there um I think that 
I also think that like the timing of the ENS launch kind of was a shame. Like it was great because it, 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 so basically they launched May 4th, 2017, which was like middle of, or beginning middle of like the, the ICO hype. Um, and so even though it wasn't an ICO, it was the same sort of like, like speculation land grab esque thing. Um, and so so many people bought names, but they weren't necessarily buying names for use. They were buying their own purposes. They were buying names to basically someone bought Charlie Shrem like on day one. Yeah. But we don't um, have we didn't get my Ether wallet. Someone paid a buttload for it. Um same with my crypto. Like yeah, and they're not using them. It's it's speculative, right? It's like land grab. It's like I expect this name to be worth more tomorrow than it is today, therefore I will buy it. Um Today, the market will resolve itself, though. Oh yeah, yeah, and I think that um, I think that the market has said like <laughs> the names are valuable to use, but they're not super valuable to sell. Like we haven't seen a second layer market that's super successful. We haven't seen these, um, you know, the dudes that bought up thousands and thousands of names make any money. So I think it is resolving itself, but I think that that hype around the ENS was. Uh, just a bit misguided because people were more excited about the potential value of the names rather than like actually using the names. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree with you. Um, but it's just a perfect, a lot of people are saying, well, they should make a system where if your name is Charlie Shrem or your name, your company name, and you have it registered, then you should be able to get it, you know, yeah. but that goes against the whole point of the, of what we're doing here. The whole, if, if, if Ethereum built something in that did that in the protocol itself. We should just all pack up and go home because Ethereum all, all you know, has its critics. And I feel like people that love crypto are more critical. So I, I, I take myself an example. I'm extremely critical of Ethereum um, and on, you know, and I'll go out and, and, and say things to Vitalik or to Vlad or whatever because they're my good friends and I've known them and, and I can, but it's not out of hate. It's out of love. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But some people are very, you know, will be very trolly and, and be out of hate. Yeah. I, I actually like had a, a conversation on, we have an all hands call every week with everyone at the company. Um, and we just kind of shoot the shit and talk about whatever's relevant. But we had a whole all hands call about exactly what you're talking about, where, when we're talking to each other or when we're providing feedback or when we're having a conversation, it's not a good thing if we're all in agreement and like we're, we don't want a culture in our company or in the crypto ecosystem of like, I don't know, some big giant kumbaya circle, but echo chamber. Yeah. We, we want, you know, critical thinking. We want people to disagree because that's how thoughts get fully fleshed out and, you know, they, they kind of go to that next level. Um, but again, like it has to come from, I call it like a place of positivity. So even if you strongly, vehemently disagree with someone else, um, you should also like let it be known that you're voicing your concern or you're starting this conversation because you want the greater ecosystem to succeed. Like, But Taylor, you know that, you know <laughs> that like, I wish that too, but you have to, you know, that the, 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 the combined social skills score of everyone in crypto 
is like super low. Oh yeah. Well, and it's like way more fun to just like yell on the internet. We're all a bunch of nerds and geeks from our parents' basements and garages. And half of us are on the spectrum. Um, that's the way. That's who we are. That's why we love us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it has worked pretty well, like within our company, though. But there's only there's only like twenty of us, so we're. Uh... That's. I feel like that's the perfect number. Yeah. For a company, though. I don't. Yeah, I don't really. I don't want. I don't think I want to get any bigger. Well, so you. You grew, up in Cali- you grew up in California, Manhattan Beach. Yep. Known as a very, very laid back lifestyle. Yep. Um, and you went to New York for, for school. Mm-hmm. So you, you learned the New York way. How long did you live in New York for? I was in New York for almost four years. Okay. So if, so the kind of the given is that if you live in New York, some say 10, some say three. I feel like if you live in New York for three years, you could call yourself a New Yorker. Because most people give up in the second year. I know people who have moved and then moved back. Yeah. So you became a New Yorker and you learned the New Yorker ways, which are basically how to how to figure out what's bullshit and how to work a little bit faster than than they do in California or even here in Florida. Um, was that a big thing for you? Yeah. New York was very different. Um, when it's cold, uh, it has seasons. Um, it's a huge city. Uh, I was living in West Village. Um, it, it's you walk everywhere. You take the subway, which is not something you do in LA ever. Um, yeah, you have like an itty bitty apartment where you like live on top of a sushi place, and you have neighbors on you and around you and under you and everything. Um, it's yeah. It was. I loved it though. And I loved the change and, and I had a choice. I, I basically, I wanted to go to school for film. And so I had a choice between USC and NYU, which are um, the two best film schools because that's how I roll. <laughs> I want the best of everything. Um, and the reason that I chose NYU was because it wasn't USC because I felt like if I went to USC, I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to get a different experience. I'm just going to stay in LA Um you know, and, and probably like, you know, hang out with the same circle of friends and be the same person at the end of. But you went back. I did come back. <laughs> I did come back. I got so sick of the snow. I, I hate that's why I moved to Florida. Yeah. My wife and I were like done. No more shoveling snow. Yeah, exactly. I just I couldn't. Um, so it's funny. So I, I went to school for two years and then um, I I left school. I took a leave of absence, technically. I didn't just, like, drop out. Um, I, didn't, I hate that term, drop out. <laughs> I did it responsibly. I could have gone back. They still email me every year, and they're like, hey, come back. Um, or donate or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, I basically I kind of overloaded myself. I had all the school stuff, which uh, NYU is liberal arts, so you have your core film classes. Then you have your, like, science classes where you're actually, like, with the science majors, um, and then you have like outside projects that you just want to work on for fun. Um, and I overloaded myself and I basically had to make a choice and I chose to just fully dedicate myself to sort of the, the movies I was working on. Um, I was working on some senior thesis films, et cetera. Um, and so I did that and I just continued to work there for a couple of years. And then what happened? Yeah. And then it was winter again. <laughs> And I couldn't do another winter. And I was I was kind of lost. I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to work in the industry. Like, I loved 
telling stories and making movies, but I didn't. So many of my friends, you know, had moved to LA to work in the industry and it just, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I think I had, I had like a thousand dollars in my bank account. And then I got my thousand dollar security deposit back because I cleaned my apartment before moving out. Um, so you had two grand. I had two grand. Uh, and I packed up everything in like one bag and I flew, I bought a round trip ticket to Sydney, like on New Year's Eve because it was cheap. I could get there for like a grand or something. And I lived in Australia for summer, their summer, our winter, uh, until I was out of money. And then I um, called my mom and said, I need to come home. Uh, I, have a, I have a question. Yeah. Like, okay, um, not not to sound weird, but being a filmmaker is not one of those um, – jobs that you can just like move anywhere and start making money instantly no it's not (laughs) okay i just wanted to let maybe you didn't know that at the time i no no i moved to sydney because um uh so i had a couple friends there and they said that i could live in there uh they had like it was technically a three-bedroom apartment but the third bedroom was like i don't know like six by six feet or something it was a closet they said i could stay there um and it was summer, like it was summer in Australia. Like that was the, I was so done with the snow and the cold. That was it. Um, Did the snow affect you that much? Like, do you oh have my God, I'm a total, an experience? I'm a total, it's not, yeah, I get really cold. So then I have to put on like layers and layers and layers. And I hate that. New York is the worst because you have the slush, like the dirt slush, which I hated. Um, it's like brown and disgusting. It's so gross. And like you step on something that you think is like half an inch deep and it's like, I don't know, a foot or two. Um, and then it's, it was mostly, so the thing I hate about cold is that, okay, so you, you bundle up, you put on all these layers, you walk outside, uh, and then you go into the subway and you have to strip down because it's freaking hot down there. And then you come back up, you have to put all the clothes back on, and then you walk into your building, uh, wherever you're going, and you have to take off all your clothes again. (laughs) You can't do anything because you can't even walk around. Um, I have very bad memories growing up because we lived in Brooklyn, and when it would snow, my father would call me up from work and say, make sure you shovel or wake up early in the morning because he had to go to work and I had to shovel. But my dad would offer like me to shovel all the neighbors. Oh my for free. god! So I'm shoveling the whole block, um, and it sucked because it would take hours and hours, and it was exhausting. And yeah, I know it was, you know, moral fiber building or whatever you want to call it. But I hated shoveling, and I and and it made me hate snow with a passion mm-hmm. that I would just avoid it at all costs and the best part of moving out of my parents house and moving into a building was that i didn't have to to shovel anymore but yeah i can't once when i when i when i i remember um i'll put you in the zone i was a few months before my release from prison and i'm sitting in my case manager's office and he said all right um you know where it looks like um, according to our paperwork you're going to be released uh back to new york um, you'll be sent to a halfway house in New York and, um, and good luck on life. And I was like, whoa, um, hold on. If I, I have a choice of where I want to go. Right. And he said, yeah, I said, all right, well, I actually want, I don't want to go back to New York. I hate New York. I said, um, 
released me to Pennsylvania. He's like, well, what do you know in Pennsylvania? I said, well, my girlfriend is my wife now. She lives there with her mom, and um, I'll figure out a, a job. I just I don't want to go back to New York. So went to – got released to Pennsylvania, and then <clears throat> and then I dealt with that winter there, which was the worst, which was worse than New York. Mm-hmm. But the day, the day my six-month halfway house was over, the day it was over, we were on a plane to Florida – that that next day, I, as soon as I could g- legally get on a plane, we got on a plane and left and we never looked back. I said, I need to get out of here. I hate the north. It's too much snow, too many demons, too, too much, just negativity I'm heading down to Florida. And I don't know anyone here. We don't know anything. It was me, my wife, my mother-in-law. We all moved down here together and we share an apartment for a year because we couldn't really afford to have our own places yet. Um, we... When I got released from jail, I maybe like 20 grand to my name. Yeah. Um, and so well, the bull market hadn't come yet, which was great. Um, I timed that perfectly. Like being in jail, <laughs> the, ultimate, the ultimate hold. You can't. Um, and I actually remember. And so we moved out to Florida. And I'll tell you. I know this is supposed to be untold stories of our guests. But I'm the one no, telling the stories. No, this is so good now. though. But I, I, I remember. I, I, oh, my God. It was so funny. I was in. Um, I was in. um. I had a job as a dishwasher. So when you get out of jail, you have to maintain a real job. And, and, um, like a W2 I mean real, job, like a W2 yep. job where you can't know anyone in advance. They don't want you to like go back to what you did before so that you can't, um, you can't, so you can't work in an office. You can't work a white collar job. You can't work a tech job. You can't, you got to get like a real job, a real job. Like if my wife worked at a winery, she had, that's a great job. Like, they didn't let me work at a winery. Um, so they told me. <laughs> Well, there's an there's a restaurant attached to it next door, so I'll be a dishwasher at the restaurant, and I was like, awesome, like, all right, whatever. Just side note, I love that job. Um, Wait, why promoted... why did you like dishwashing? Well, because it was it was super super um, physically um, engaging. Uh-huh. You had to work really really hard. I worked eleven hours a day, four days a week, and I got paid crap, but it doesn't matter. I worked really really hard. I didn't have to think about any thing in my brain it just i put headphones oh on yeah. and i wash dishes so that's why i was on a podcast i don't know maybe six months ago or a year ago i don't even remember but he, he asked me like you know like so he asked me some question and i said i don't know i think that i might want to go and like scoop ice cream or something and he looked at yes. me like i was like a freaking like what <laughs> who the hell are you like you have this amazing company you're doing this amazing stuff blah 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 I know a lot of crypto people that you and I both know that drive Uber. Yeah. Um, they are CEOs of high-powered – I know one guy. He's a CEO of a company that raised $20 million in this space, um, VC money. And on his free time, he hops in his Audi R8, which is like over a $100,000 car, and drives Uber. There's something about it that like – I don't know. I just figure like with scooping ice cream – like everyone is happy yeah everyone would be happy i can make people's days with like a little thing but also like if i fucked something up it's it's fucking ice cream you know what i mean like you okay i'll do better the next ice cream it's fucking ice cream like you know what i mean like it's so uh short term that okay i'll make you a new cup you know what i mean where in my life right now yeah like i like there's so many things that race through my head like where if i if i screw something up and there's so many things and there's so many unknowns. 
it's it's very overwhelming at times and i'm like i don't want to be able to screw anything up long term anymore like i don't want i don't want a choice that i make today you know to come bite me in the ass a year from now or two years from now or, or 10 years from now but what people don't understand and hopefully they understand by listening to this is that that's a real fear that that you have and i'm oh yeah i'm, I'm happy that you have that fear you take it seriously because what you do is so important to the crypto community. It's important that you take that seriously. Yeah. Well, and I joke around, but it's um, when I when I first started hiring people, when we were my Ether wallet and like, you know, the market was picking up all of a sudden I couldn't do everything by myself. Like we needed help. I started hiring people because everyone said like, OK, you need help. Like you need you can't answer all the support tickets yourself anymore. You can't do all of this, you know, by yourself. You're, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I, I really started hiring people because that's what you do when you have a growing, you know, product or a growing company. And it wasn't until later that I realized, um, like, when you hire people, you're now sort of responsible for their their well-being and, like, whether that's their families or their, you know, their tuition or their mortgage or whatever, Um you know, if you screw something up on your end in terms of the company um, or if you run out of money or if you make bad choices or whatever, that affects everyone, everyone that you hire. <laughs> like, and I have no problem firing someone for performance. Let's just put it that way. But I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to like, you know, hey, guys, sorry, I we couldn't make this work. Bye. Like, my grandfather. Fuck. <laughs> My grandfather taught me very early on that you are nothing without your your team. And he didn't he owned a, an, a, an electronics store in New York and he didn't even like using the word employees. He called yeah. them my team. Um and I like that you say that when well, you know you have your team stand up and everything. But I've had some really bad experiences too. At BitInstant I had to fire 5 people in one day. Um and it was a terrible 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 thing. I think it it goes in the list, top five traumatic things I've had to go through, mm -hmm. um, prison being one of them, but firing five people in one day because we were, if not the first, BitInstant was one of the first crypto companies to actually offer health insurance to our employees. Mm -hmm. And I really think we were, we were the first. And if I'm wrong, someone tell me because I don't know of anyone else. Tell you. The internet will tell you, Charlie. But I'm pretty sure we were, if not the first to offer matching 401ks, health insurance, and actually like an HR person yeah. in our, in our company, um, who was not a dude, which was, which was great. Um, um, even, even with this podcast, I always, I always try to make sure that I have the most diverse group of guests as I can, but that's really important. And my grandfather taught me that. Yeah. It's, um, your team is like, I think that's probably one of the most rewarding things about like with all the fears and everything else that comes with hiring people and now having a team and, and a company and all of that, like there's days where I wake up and I like catch up because we're, we're a distributed team. So Europe is like, when I wake up, Europe's been like cranking it for, for hours. Um, and I catch up on like what everyone's been doing and I'm like, holy crap, like everyone is doing all the things that I used to do except better and more diligently and with like their own unique take and they're coming up with their own ideas on how to do things and 
like all it's just like I don't even know how to say it. It's remarkable. I see what you mean. It's like because it's not it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah, it's it's. I just like sit back sometimes and I'm like, how the hell did I get here? How did I get so lucky to have like all like this team, all of these individuals, um, you know, because they're all I mean, they're crypto fanatics, but they're also like insanely talented and they know their stuff and and they do things differently than me. Like that's valuable. Um, they're not little mini me's, even though I no, I I, I, and I think around. one of the most, you the know, mini-me's. like I joke around. I'm like, I wish I had a clone of myself, but I don't. Because it's the it's that diversity, it's the uniqueness. It's like they don't look at the world the same way I do. They don't uh, approach problems the same way I do. That's what makes it so valuable that they're not me. One of the most pro-social behaviors as human beings we can have um, to contribute back to the earth. Yes, there are so many important things in life that we need to do: protest, uh, environmental issues, yeah, whatever. Um, but job creation. Mm-hmm. How many jobs have you created in your lifetime? That number, I feel like, is really what makes a human being above the the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how many jobs you've created, I feel like that's something that is not talked about enough. And I feel like that's something that should be worn with a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like how many, like, I don't know, because when I... When I think about our team members and what, like, I, I think about, like, what they get out of this experience because I don't expect them to be, you know, with us forever. You know, this is just, especially these days, uh, like, this is just a blip on their their longer journey. And so I talk to them a lot about how do they make their experience at MyCrypto, like, the best it can possibly be and how can they grow so that it's not like, okay, I, I went to this job and I did this job, and then I left this job. You know, like they should come in and then be a, a completely different person when they leave. Um, and I think we've done a good job at that. But it's like, even if you're not creating jobs per se, you can have that effect on people around you, whether it's like via mentorship, whether it's like in the US, we have like the Boys and Girls Club type programs. Um, but then also just like, literally like random people around you being pro-social yeah you can make people's days and you can you can do really little things to like make people smile or um serving ice cream like serving ice cream exactly well the serving ice cream would be a great job but you'd have downtime i feel like which you don't want to have um if you ever seriously want to do like some sort of side thing as a stress relief um there there's a great um become a food runner at a very busy restaurant Mm. that's also a fantastic job i i love being a food runner because it's there's no thinking involved at all Mm -hmm. Um, there's no critical thinking you have food you run it to the tables you put it at the right seats and you come back and it's it's balancing act and it's doing it as best as you can with grace but with also speed and agility and it's a great job but the best job i you know i was i was promoted very quickly so as a humbling experience like you talk about life-changing moments being in prison was one was humility training for sure, but having to work in this restaurant for six months, I think changed my life for the better because before I went in, I was this Bitcoin millionaire. I was on top of the world. I was the king. And now I have to start at this 100 employee restaurant 
at the bottom. Um, and I can't use any of my past to my, to my benefit. I have to start at the bottom and prove myself and earn the respect of the other staff, which was very, very, very hard to do because I was already starting with a crutch. Um, and they didn't know anything about me, who I am. All they knew was I was this felon coming out of jail working at the restaurant. So when I would walk by, they would all hold their pockets like I'm going to rob them or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I, they yeah. thought I was like a drug dealer. No one knew. They, they didn't really Google or anything. So I had to prove myself. And it was very difficult. But eventually, I was promoted to my favorite job of all time. I was the expediter. Are you familiar with, with the expediter role in a restaurant? No. Okay. The expediter is the most, is single most important role in a restaurant. And it, only restaurants that are really busy have them. So you look at a restaurant that's, that's serving um, a few hundred people, a few hundred tables um, in, a, in a lunch or dinner session. So the restaurant I worked at had about 60 tables. And what the order expediter does is the order expediter is the conductor who, who, who communicates to the line what food needs to be made when exactly the right time. So when a ticket is printed at a restaurant, when it's, when you're, when you're, when you're, you have a table of six and you, and the waitress walks up to you or the waiter walks up to you and he takes your order and you have drinks, you have appetizers, you have, um, main, main courses and dessert. And sometimes even more than, than two courses, the expediter has to know how long it takes to cook everything how long it takes for you to eat on average that thing and to make sure that everyone who gets their appetizers at the same time will also get all their main courses at the same time. All the food comes out hot and no one has to wait more than 15 minutes to get food at any given time. Um, and then uh, at the line, you also have you have one person that's doing different things. So you have the salad guy, you have the, um, the, the, the fryer and the grill, you have the pasta person, Who's who's in the you know doing on the grills and on the ovens? So a, a busy kitchen, a busy line, and this is not even the back part of the kitchen. A busy line can have five or six people that you need to now conduct. Not only that, but you have at any given time 15, 20 tickets, twenty tables at a given time, and that is the hardest job at a restaurant, but is one of the most fulfilling re- jobs you you possibly have. Yeah, that's like um. That's insane. I didn't, I've never really thought about it. So whenever, if there's, if you're at a busy restaurant and your order gets screwed up, something happens, whatever it is, more often than not, it's the expediter's responsibility right. because it's the expediter's responsibility to read the tickets and understand exactly what's written on the ticket and then tell because the people, so, so when a ticket gets printed, everything, yes, it's not when like a ticket you have gets, one ticket, you have like all the tickets and you have to get when all a ticket gets the printed, stuff. the kitchen doesn't read them. So when, right. when, when an order gets put in by your waiter, no one in the line is actually reading that ticket. Mm-hmm. The expediter is telling them what to make, right? The expediter needs to know you need to have five burgers on. You need to have steaks, pasta, shellfish, seafood, salad, dessert, all being done in concert. So I would work four days a week and I I did the breakfast, lunch, and dinner session. And then in between those sessions, when there was, I had a break, I had like a two hour break because you burn out so quickly. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> I mean, that's not, it sounds physically demanding, but it also sounds like the mental. Yeah. That one wasn't as physically demanding as it was mentally. Cause you basically stand up, you're standing for four or five hours the whole time. 
Yeah, but mentally demanding. Yeah. It is exhausting. But I liked that better because it didn't give me time to think. Mm -hmm. My brain was completely busy during those 11 hours every day. I couldn't have time to think about anything. My phone was off completely and... And it was the best job ever. Yeah. Did you like the did you like that because you couldn't think about anything else? Or did you like dishwashing because you could like just think about things and like let the thoughts finish themselves or whatever? When I first got out of jail, I started working. Um <clears throat> when I first got out of jail, I started working about four days later. So everything was very new to me. I remember walking into CVS pharmacy for the first time. And I was like a kid in a candy store. I was so excited. I was walking around the shelves, interacting with other human beings that aren't inmates like you. Um, It was just like an eye-opening experience. And then my wife took me to a Walmart and I was freaking out. I was like, (laughs) honey, I need to get back in the car. This is is way too much. People are talking to me. I I don't know what's going on. It's way too overwhelming. Yeah. Um, And then I went to a Barnes & Noble. I got very overwhelmed by how many books there were. And I just I got sick. I had to go back in the car as well. Um, so there's there's definitely that. That's so interesting. There's um, so my parents, my dad's been involved in like boats for forever. Um, but before I was born, um, my parents sailed from Florida um, across the Atlantic. They stopped in the Azores. I don't even know where they ended up, but they were in the Azores wow. for a while, um, delivering a boat. And that trip from Florida to the Azores is 17 it takes days. Weeks. Yeah. yeah. So they're at sea for 17 days. Um, and my dad said, so there's four of them <clears throat> and you have to do like shifts, right? Because you're at sea for 17 days. There's nothing like you just, someone is up and you have to keep the course and you have to make sure you don't hit anything. Um, but it's, you know, it's not, you basically just sit there like 99% of the time. Um, and when the shifts overlap, then you maybe have a conversation with someone, right. Or like if, if you catch dinner with someone else or whatever, but a majority of your time is sitting there in the middle of the ocean alone. And my dad said for the first time in his life, that's when his, sort of like all of these thoughts, all these little strings that had, you know, over the years, like the thought had started in his head, but it hadn't ever like finished because it had been taken over by something else. He's like, that was the first time in his life where he like was able to have all of the thoughts, all these separate strings, like finish. And he, he talks about like really just like thinking through uh, his first marriage, you know, his companies, everything that he's done. Um, and that, I think when he first told me the story, I was, I was probably like in middle school and I didn't really understand what, like why I didn't really get it, you know, because you, when you're in middle school, you don't have, um, you're like 13, like, you know, boys and drama and nails and whatever. Um, but now that is so attractive to me, but I get it because that's what, you know, I feel like in my head all the time, there's these things that start and they never finish and I never properly like deal with them or I never properly uh, fully think them out. Um, And whether it's like work or whether it's like some random thought about, you know, whatever, 
um, it's it's really interesting. <laughs> it's really really interesting. Um, I think that's why that's why I ask you about the dishwasher is because I was wondering if like that allowed you to I don't know like process things um, and like especially grapple with your time in in prison and stuff. It definitely did. Um, I had two two jobs in in prison and one of them was. I worked in education um, for a few weeks or a few months, and I basically taught tutored students for their for their GED. So the so if you're in prison and you don't have a GED, this is the like the one good rule that the Department of Justice has is that they won't release you until you get your GED, or at least you have to make like a conscious effort. So they have other inmates teach and tutor the inmates that don't have their high school equivalency um, to get it which is, I think, very important. So I would I would be, like, tutoring kids, and, and we all use, like, nicknames. I had one guy, his name was Detroit, and another guy, his name was Murder. Um, these are their names, like, you know. Um, but that job was okay. Um, it was kind of fulfilling, even though the kids, the, like, kids, the students didn't really want to, to, to actually learn or take it seriously. But the better job I had was I worked in land... So I, re- I quickly realized that I had way too much time on my hands, and... Um, I applied for a job working in landscaping at another prison, which was great. So I got, I got to go on a little, like a bus every day there and back. And it's like 20 minutes away, but I got to like see the world outside of my compound every day. And that was a huge thing for me. Um, but I got trained on, you know, how much we hate snow, you and I. I got trained on a snowplow. That was my job. I drove a snowplow. And um, how is it was that? The, it was well. It was it was one of those. It was a vent track. So during the winter, um, it was a snowplow. But then during the summer, um, it other it did other things like street sweep. So I was like, oh. I did, so mm-hmm. basically, I'm on like five thousand acres, and I'm driving around all day by myself, just just plowing snow and driving a street sweeper. And that was the best job. <laughs> I that was the best job to see like this contraption you're talking about. it's called ventrac v-e-n-t-r-a-c yep um took me like three days to learn how to use it in a parking lot and um it was funny training because they're training me on a parking lot which was very small and the guards were like all right charlie here's your training if you crash you get sent to solitary confinement pending an investigation (laughs) like what do you mean you're right here you see everything that's what they did like um i had three friends yeah i had three friends who were driving a truck and they drove into a ditch and they got sent to solitary confinement for like two months pending an investigation, mm-hmm. even though they just drove into a ditch. Mm-mm. It wasn't their fault, but that's just the way it worked in there. You couldn't complain. But yeah, it's interesting because jobs are really important. So I feel like um, being able to work in crypto is so self-fulfilling in and of itself mm-hmm. that we should just appreciate that we could even work in this space. Oh, Yeah. Well, and, and like one of the reasons I didn't want to do, like I wasn't attracted to the film industry was because it's so, <sighs> there's a formula. You follow the formula, you make a successful show. Everyone has their job. Everyone does their job. You go home. You know, the things that attracted me to making movies originally was like, you know, telling stories sharing things, communicating, whatever it was, you know, that's, that's new that are, that are 
you know, yeah. And, and with crypto, I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is like, this stuff is all new and we all have the ability to shape the direction that it goes in. And we have the ability to really uh, either keep sort of the philosophy alive or let it die. Um, we have like the literally anything we can do anything. And that is really, really, really unique. Um, I don't think that there's many industries like that. Uh, crypto is still very much a social experiment. Mm -hmm. It's a science experiment. We're not at version one yet. And everyone involved today has the ability to shape its future. But also don't treat us like we're some, you know, industry that's been around for 100 years. Mm -hmm. We don't have our shit together just because we don't really know what we're doing. Right, exactly. And and that's what, um, you know, when I talk to people, I want to, like, I love talking to people outside the industry because, um, I want to learn what other industries or other people or other things, what are they doing really, really well or what historically has worked really, really well? Um, and how can we take those things and either like apply it to whether it's like my personal life or my company or crypto as a whole, you know, how can we sort of take the best and learn from the worst um, and and make sure that the future that we're building is actually, you know, something that we want. What have you found? Um, so there's a lot of pessimism in general. Um, there's a lot of like people compare crypto to like early Internet a lot. I don't um, really like that comparison. Yeah, I, I kind of get it. I watched a couple of documentaries uh, and like read stuff. I get it. Um, and the one thing that I will say is that very early, like, internet hackers, cypherpunks, like, they were, they were very philosophical as well, like, very similar to crypto. But they weren't running, starting and running the companies. They didn't have to invent an industry. Right. I mean, there are a few outliers like Apple and Microsoft, but I don't even, you know, Apple, yeah. Um, but they didn't have to invent an industry because computers were... Um, adopted and grown by these large mega corporations, which the cypherpunks were against, which is what their whole thing was. Right. But that's what kind of worries me because, you know, as the rumors fly about Facebook and stuff, you know, is, is history going to show sort of the same tale where we are, <laughs> we're just these early hackers who had the philosophy and were, you know, puttering around and, building what we thought should be built, you know, and then X corporation zooms in and this is how the world works now. Um, you know, again, like how do we, how do we keep the philosophy alive? How do we keep the things that matter alive? Because honestly, if we, if crypto ends up being like just another centralized payment layer, have we really done? No, we failed. Yeah. We failed. Um, and as happy some people get and they think it's bullish that Facebook's launching their global coin, which sounds so bad. Global coin? You couldn't come up with a better name for it? Oh, I didn't even know that was a name. I thought it was still... That's what I mean. They're, they're coining box. it. <laughs> so if that's if that's the best we can do, um, then we failed. Yeah. Because... But 
the market feels like the market feels like it still needs the big boys to take over. And and I don't like that because as much as I love the market, I think that we have some really great companies and products and it takes time. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, and there's this old quote that says like markets are efficient, but then they end that the quote doesn't end there. Markets are efficient when we allow them to be. Mm-hmm. And that's like our, how, how our whole lives work. You know, we don't allow the market to resolve itself. The government comes in and does what they ever do with the, with, with their currency. And, um, and that's the way it works. Um, we all want instant gratification. So when something is not working, we instantly want a solution. But if we had let the problem and the solution kind of work itself out, we could have gotten somewhere better. So with crypto, luckily now, it's like we've had so far almost 10 years to work this out. And it's getting better. And we make a lot of mistakes, but you need to make those mistakes. The whole ICO world that happened, a lot of scams and a lot of whatever, there were maybe 5% of good that came out of that. But that 5% is very important. Mm -hmm. That 5% that we got out of that is going to be the next wave of where we go. But we needed that 95% other crap. There's um, there's a good way to describe it. There's a, 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 I forget, it's like, um, is it nuclear fission or is there some, there's some um, chemical reaction that when you put in all the elements, 95% of what comes out of it is a byproduct and the other 5% is like the good stuff. Mm-hmm. But that good stuff is so important that it's worth that other 90, other 95% of crap that we, that we get. Um, that's how I kind of see this space. Yeah. We, we need to make those mistakes. Yeah. Well, and like with ICOs, I mean, I was, whew, I screamed and stopped my feet about them, you know, while, while it was happening. And I tried to protect people against the scams and the greed and yelled at the top of my lungs. And yeah, like you, you have to fight against that shit all the shit and try to help people but you can't deny that ICOs in the long run um there is good that's going to come from it right um yes some people are going to lose their money yes some people are going to take the money and run um but overall it created a I think it proved that that crypto can be used for like capital allocation really efficiently, <laughs> too efficiently. Um, but it also drove a, a a huge amount of excitement, and not all of it was good. Some of it was just like, oh my god, I'm so rich. But some of it was really good because it empowered people to take risks that they wouldn't otherwise take or build things that they wouldn't otherwise build. Um, or get excited about things that, you know, they wouldn't otherwise get excited about. Um, and I think that we'll see that, especially because it's crypto and it's money and, you know, speculation drive stuff. Um, we'll see more of these sort of hype cycles where something newfangled comes out that is going to get people rich. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come along <laughs> with a lot of shit, you know, but in the long run... It, that's sort of like how we how we grow and how we find our place and how we find, you know, the systems that, you know, in the traditional world aren't working 
sure aren't working and, as well as they should be. And I really hope what you says what you say what you what you say comes true because if it was up to a lot of people, they don't want us to have that ability anymore. Right. Um, they want us to have much more of a straighter line, but we need to make those mistakes and we need to kind of figure this the whole thing out, like you said. Um, yeah. And I think I think we don't give our government enough credit. And I'm like the last person you would think would say that. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, um, it's being warmed up. So last night, um, got invited to dinner at someone's house and, um, it was my, my friend, my friend and his mom, his mother is like a, um, she's a socialite, but she's also a very powerful woman. She, she runs one of the largest companies here in Florida. And we always know that when we get invited to dinner at their house, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, I have to wear pants, not, not shorts. It's like a, yeah, it's, it's a legit, you don't know who's going to be there. It's, it's a nice dining room table. So we, we expect, we expect greatness. So we were there and, and there was no one really. So she's from the South. Um, my, fr- my friend's mom. So she's from the South and, um, you have a great group of, of, of powerful Southern women who are awesome and great stories and great conversations. And they've, you know, some of them are billionaires and they've done some crazy things. There was another couple there that I didn't know. Um, and they sat right across from me and they were holding the conversation the whole time. And they were asking me about crypto. They were like really drilling. I kept trying to change the conversation, but they saw my 60 minutes piece and they were very into crypto. And I get into my whole tirade. I'm like, you know, like, um, crypto is amazing. And it's, it's the ability to not have to trust governments and all these different things. And, um, and after, and, and I didn't even give those people the ability to like, let me know who they were. But after it was over, um, I had found out that she is a former congressman and he owns the largest bank, one of the largest banks in the country. Oh, so I was like, yeah, like, you know, like, let me know who these people are sometimes before I start saying how bad bankers are and how bad the government is. Um, but they actually, why I'm bringing this up is that they actually are super libertarian and they love crypto. And yeah. they said that there's a lot of people in the government that love crypto too. I mean, if, if the government wanted to shut crypto down, they would have shut it the fuck down. Like, you know what I mean? And yes, they're giving their guidance and yes, they're coming after some people and yes, you know, but overall, like, really, I mean, the Dow, I think the Dow thing was the first one where I was like, okay, there, there, something's going on. Because when they gave their, their, whatever it's called, their guidance or their statement on the Dow, they let it be known, you know, what rules people should be playing by. And then they were like, yeah, and, and okay, cool. You know what I mean? And it's, they could have, I mean, they could have taken everyone involved and, and thrown them away. And thrown True away story. The, so know? that's why I say that we have to give credit because they are letting us um, still resolve this out. And that's really important to allow mm-hmm. us to do with within within certain boundaries. But you know yeah. what? We live in this country. We do have to follow laws. Right. Um, and and the thing is, is that it's not necessary. Like having rules that, that people follow um it's not just rules by default aren't bad um but we do you know and this is why crypto is valuable it's like we have to question the established rules we have to question the way things are done and why they're done um so that we can do them better 
but it doesn't mean that we have to redo every single thing. Um, you know, just because you want to disrupt one thing or make something more efficient doesn't mean that um, you have to disrupt literally everything. Um, and one of the reasons why when I set up my crypto, I set it up as like a very traditional Dell or C Corp company um, instead of doing some fancy co-op or ICO or DAO or, you know, any of Is you wanted to follow these certain rules and regulations? Well, not even that. I just was like, okay, well, let's just do it the traditional way so that it's like a no-brainer. I can hire anyone and they can handle the company and, and the legal stuff. And I can focus on... Um, building a product. Yeah, I can focus on my team and my product, make those remarkable, figure out how we can make this space more accessible, make this space better. Um, because, yeah, if we had, I mean, we could have set up like some fancy, some crazy fancy Switzerland thing. Switzerland thing, yeah. You know, but then how much of my time or my team's time or our resources would be spent on that? Um, and I do think that some, some people in the space forget uh, and they do just want to like change everything and it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily the most efficient or the best way to go about it because now you're just changing everything to change it and you're not actually you know diving deep into the problem or, or solving the problem or whatever Taylor thank you so much for coming on the show um, I really appreciate that's the best way to end right there hey everyone thanks for listening New episodes of Untold Stories go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.